Hi, this is Stan Bush. Hi, this is Stephanie Calvert. This is John Payne. This is Jack Hughes. Hey everyone, this is Britt Lightning from Vixen. Hey everybody, this is Prescott Niles. Hi, I'm Carrie Stevens. Hello, I'm Kofi Baker. listening to Play That Rock and Roll. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host, Cho K, and today we are talking about some good old-fashioned Southern rock. Yes, we are going down south today to talk about one of the greatest Southern rock bands of all time, Molly Hatchet, a band you would most recognized from their big hit song, Flirtin' with Disaster. And if not that, perhaps their iconic Frank Frazetta album covers, which you can still find at any record store today, among the most striking album covers of any band of the classic rock era. Before we talk about the band, just want to provide a reminder about the new format for my solo podcast episodes. You know, this is an artist retrospective. As I do these artist retrospective episodes, I want to include audio from special guest experts that I've talked to about the artists I'm covering. And today, my guest is Xavier Russell, who wrote extensively about Molly Hatchett back when he worked at Kerrang! magazine in the 80s. See, I thought he would be a good fit because when I was doing research for this podcast, I found a lot of old Kerrang! articles, album reviews, interviews, that kind of thing, and I couldn't help but notice that almost all of them were written by the same guy, Xavier Russell. So I tracked Xavier down, which was no easy task because he's not on social media and he's overseas. He's working in Scotland when I got in touch with him. And I told him that I wanted to do a podcast about Molly Hatchet and he was more than happy to come on. When we did the interview, I realized there's a lot more of this guy's story than just what he wrote about Molly Hatchet. So we kind of recorded two things. One is already on our YouTube channel and in the podcast feed. It's my interview with Xavier about his time working at Kerrang! back in the 80s. So I would definitely encourage you to check that out. I cut all of the Molly Hatchet conversation out of that interview because that is the stuff that I'm going to use in this episode and our next one. Yes, there's going to be a part two uh, to this because Molly Hatchet, if you didn't know, has a very long history with a lot of various band members that have been in and out of the group over the years. So there's a lot of story to tell and there's also a pretty clear dividing line between the original lineup of Molly Hatchet and the current lineup of the band. So this first part is going to look back at the original lineup of Molly Hatchet. At points in this podcast, I will be dropping in clips of my conversation with Xavier as he will provide a little more depth and knowledge about the band as he was around them in their uh, glory years in the early 80s. And he's still a big fan of them today. And frankly, it'll break up my voice a little bit. So I'm sure many of you (laughs) will appreciate that. (laughs) 
So if you enjoy those clips and you want to hear more from Xavier about Molly Hatchet, I will post our full conversation as a bonus video up on our YouTube channel, so be sure to check that out. Thank you again to Xavier for coming by the show. It was really cool to talk to somebody who did some great work on behalf of the band back in the 80s. Very cool to know that he's still a fan and just fun to hear his perspectives on it. So I hope you enjoy that. But with all that, let's uh, get started. Let's dive into the long and interesting history of what I think is one of the greatest Southern rock bands ever, Molly Hatchet. Hatchet was founded by guitarist Dave Hubeck, and he went through a couple of different vocalists, but eventually settled on Danny Joe Brown. Obviously, the, the rest of the band's lineup is very important to their early days, but there are so many people who've been in and out of this band, and so many people who will come in later in the story that I'm going to have to mention that I am not going to go through the rest of the original lineup now, just because... I don't want to confuse anybody under this mountain of names. There's a lot of people that we have to talk about with Molly Hatchet, so I'm just going to stick to the real core of the band, and I think Dave Hubeck and Danny Joe Brown are the most important members in the band's early years. The other tough reality about talking about this band is that almost everybody from this early era have since passed away. The longest-serving members in the band that tours as Molly Hatchet now joined in the 80s, so even after the heyday. There's a lot of controversy around the band's lineup today. We'll get into that later. There's a lot of resentment from older Molly Hatchet fans, old school Molly Hatchet fans that don't like the current lineup and wouldn't like any version of a current lineup because it, it's missing all the original pieces. I'll tell you right now, I'm not on board with that, but we will cover all of that at a later point because that is, unfortunately, kind of a tough reality of the band. So... Let's talk about the history. First and foremost, what is going on with the name? The name Molly Hatchet is actually one of the coolest things about them. If you have the first album, you can look on the back cover and you can read a brief explanation about why they named their band Molly Hatchet. They were, quote, named after a famous 17th century axe murderess, Hatchet Molly, who would behead her lovers with the hand tool Lizzie Borden made famous. Okay, so I did a deeper look into this, and this Hatchet Molly serial killer is actually a Civil War era sex worker who would murder her Johns by decapitating them. Now, you can find interviews with Dave Hubick in which he explains that the name was ultimately picked out of a hat where everybody in the band threw potential names into, and this was like the first one or the last one left or whatever the case that they picked and just kind of settled on it. And in those interviews, he always seems a little embarrassed by it, but I think the band should have totally leaned into this, uh, because this story is fucking metal. <laughs> A woman named Hatchet Molly is just killing dudes during the Civil War. I don't know. That, to me, is metal as fuck. Uh, it is hardcore, and the band should celebrate this legacy a little bit more. <laughs> 
I don't think it's a silly name. I think it is an awesome name. Unfortunately, in the time before the internet, when these guys broke through, this did cause some confusion for um, local fans in the Jacksonville area who expected there to be a woman in the group. So this band is based out of Jacksonville, Florida, much like their fellow Southern rock band, Leonard Skinner. And I will say right here that Leonard Skinner's shadow looms very large over this band's legacy. I mean, Leonard Skinner looms large over all of Southern rock, but Molly Hatchet in particular owes a great deal to Leonard Skinner and is very closely connected to Leonard Skinner. And one of those connections is the fact that Leonard Skinner's Ronnie Van Zant was slated to produce Molly Hatchet's debut album. The story is, is that these guys all knew each other back in Jacksonville. Ronnie Van Zant was impressed with what they were trying to put together, and he was apparently very interested in producing that first record. But we're talking about the late 70s at this point, and anyone who knows uh, Skinner's history knows that most of Leonard Skinner passed away in a tragic plane crash that happened on October 20th, 1977. Several core members of the band were killed, including Ronnie Van Zant. Leonard Skinner would go on hiatus for the next 10 years, resurfacing in the end of the 80s with a new lineup. And here's another parallel with Molly Hatchet. I know there's a contingent of Skinner fans who love the original lineup of the band and the original albums, but deeply resent the current existence and lineup of the band. For different reasons, there's Molly Hatchet fans that feel the same way about them. So let's talk about the cynical business end of the music industry. Leonard Skinner was selling a lot of albums, and there were a lot of behind-the-scenes businessmen in the music industry who were obviously unhappy because that meant there would be no albums to sell. So there was a gap in a portfolio there. And it's no secret that people really wanted someone to take Leonard Skinner's place because Leonard Skinner was at the forefront of Southern rock being a very popular genre of music at the time. Given that Molly Hatchet is from Jacksonville, Given that Ronnie Van Zant had planned to produce them, given that these guys all knew each other, the industry saw Molly Hatchet as the next best option and as potentially a group that could carry the flag for Southern Rock through the end of the 70s and into the 80s. So instead of Ronnie Van Zant, they would be signed by producer Tom Worman. And I'm going to play a clip from my conversation with Xavier Russell. And in this clip, Xavier talks about what Tom Werman told him about signing Molly Hatchet. So here, take a listen to that. Back then, he was also like an A&R guy. So I said, how did you get to how did you get to sign them? Did you send a demo or anything? He said, no, no, I physically got them up here while I was doing a cheap trick B-side. And I wanted to see what they could actually do. And he said when they plugged in and played, he'd never seen anything like it with three guitars going. Yeah. All beautifully in tune. And he said he signed them on the spot like oh, that. Yeah. That's from the mouth of Tom Worman. So it shows that they were a live band that loved playing live. When I talked to Hubert, he said it was like guitar battles on stage. It was fantastic. Another one of the big appeals of Molly Hatchet at this time is that they had three guitars out front. They called it the Three Guitar Army. And this sort of sets them apart from a lot of their Southern Rock contemporaries. When it comes to the Southern Rock of the 70s, two biggest groups from that genre would be Leonard Skinner and the Allman Brothers. Those groups could absolutely rock and they could absolutely shred, 
but there's no way that anyone would ever refer to either of these groups as metal by any stretch. Molly Hatchet was different in that regard. Molly Hatchet has always been on the heavier end of Southern rock. You could call them Southern metal or something like that. In the early days, I would not describe them as metal, but I would definitely say that there were flashes of metal influence. You could tell that they were paying attention to metal music that was really starting to come into its own in the mid-70s. Groups like Black Sabbath, obviously Led Zeppelin, Motorhead, groups like that. Those bands are starting to punch through a little bit more, and I think Molly Hatchet was paying as much attention to them as they were to, like, Leonard Skinner. All right, so Molly Hatchet's debut album was self-titled and was released in September 1978. The cover features the epic Frank Frazetta painting, Death Dealer. And this is the start of not just a very cool discography, but a very cool legacy of album covers. The first three album covers for this band are all Frank Frazetta paintings. Now, if you're not familiar with Frank Frazetta, just Google image search that name and you will probably recognize this artwork immediately because this artwork has not just been used on album covers, but they've also been used on paperback book covers. Some of the Conan the Barbarian pulp paperback books used Frank Frazetta paintings as the cover. I know there's a book series called The Death Dealer that feature this very painting, The Death Dealer, on the cover. Now, I haven't read any of these books, but you can guess that they're like medieval fantasy Conan the Barbarian Dungeons and Dragons style fantasy warfare stories. An odd pick for Southern rock albums, but not a bad pick. And frankly... The choice of album covers might overshadow the music, for some people at least, because I think that if you say to a casual music fan, hey, do you like Molly Hatchet? And they say, I don't know who that is. If you pull up an image of one of these first three albums, you know, maybe they don't know the music, but they'll be like, oh, I've seen that. It's very recognizable stuff. So I always have respected that as a very sharp move for putting these Frazetta paintings on their album covers, because this was a way to get people's attention. And not every band got that. Meatloaf got it. Asia got it. And you know what? Molly Hatchet got it better than most. All right, I'm going to play the opening moments of the first track of this debut album. It sets the tone not just for the record, but I would say for the band's entire career. This is such a great way for a band to introduce themselves, and I love this. So here, take a listen. Hell yeah, indeed. <laughs> That's, I don't know, Southern Rock in a nutshell? Like, you could boil all of Southern Rock down to that five seconds. It's excellent. That is from a track called Bounty Hunter, which is one of their better songs, and it's just the best way to open a record. The album as a whole was a mild success. It hit number 64 on the Billboard charts, so they didn't really blow anything out of the water with this first one. 
The single from the album was a song called Dreams I'll Never See, which is a cover of an Allman Brothers track from their first album. Now, you might think covering the Allman Brothers might be playing it a little too safe for a southern rock band, right? And I would agree, except that their version is way more inspired and way more similar to Buddy Miles' cover of the same song. Now, if you didn't know, Buddy Miles was in Jimi Hendrix's Band of Gypsies, and he was also a founding member of the Electric Flag. So this dude has some real rock credentials. So frankly, I'm impressed that they took more inspiration from him as opposed to what would be the much safer Allman Brothers version. Just one more morning I have to wake up with the blues So if you like this version of Dreams I'll Never See from Molly Hatchet, I would point you, not to the Allman Brothers original track, I would point you to check out Buddy Miles' version and see what you think of that song as well. All right. Another good song on this album is called Gator Country. It's an interesting track. That's a song that pokes fun at some of their uh, southern rock rivals and contemporaries. Charlie Daniels has a song called The South's Gonna Do It Again that does sort of the same thing, and I like that track too. So that kind of thing is always fun. So their debut album is a respectable effort, but it was not some world-conquering hit, and I think that's ultimately good for a band when it comes to at least the classic rock era. There's a lot of bands in classic rock that punch through with an incredible debut album and then never reach those heights again, critically or commercially. And they spend the rest of their careers chasing that original success. And that's always sad to see. So I always think it's better if a band debuts with something that's respectable, but also something that they can build upon and grow and develop further into their discographies. And Molly Hatchet did that because their second album, which was called Flirtin' with Disaster and released in 1979, that absolutely did build on their debut, and this is what would become their most successful record. Title track is obviously their biggest hit. That's the one song that I would say just about everybody knows. Although, at the time, it wasn't some world-conquering hit either. It landed outside of the Billboard Top 40. Number 42 on the Billboard charts. Now, the album hit number 19. So this is successful. This is very good. And Flirting with Disaster, the song, is unquestionably one of the quintessential southern rock tracks of all time. Not just the 70s. This is one of the best examples of southern rock as a genre. So... I know we all know this song, you've heard it before for sure, but let's take a quick listen with fresh ears and just <laughs> remind ourselves what a great tune this is. Here's Flirt with Disaster. Yeah, that is just a fucking great song. I don't know how else to put it, you know? And hey, do you want to hear the absolute best part of the song? Here, I'll play that real quick. Yes! (laughs) That is the band's whole appeal right there. You can boil Molly Hatchet down all the way to that one little... You know, (laughs) that shit is great. And if you don't like that, if you can't get into that little vocal thing, 
then I would say this band as a whole just isn't for you. And that's fine. But, like, to me, even more than the Hell Yeah from their debut album, that little moment is the band in a nutshell. And it's a great nutshell. So, no disrespect. I absolutely love that part of the song. Cracks me up every time. Now, the album cover on this one is the Frank Rosetta epic painting uh, Dark Kingdom. This is definitely something... I think you would recognize if uh, you weren't familiar with it. Uh, features a Viking warrior with an axe coming right towards you as he steps over some bones. It is metal, and it's a great visual for the band and their music. This record also includes a cover of It's All Over Now, which was previously made famous by the Rolling Stones. So you're starting to see them acknowledge their classic rock inspiration and influence um, beyond just the southern bands. And like I was saying, this isn't a sophomore slump record. A common theme through lots of music history, all kinds of genres, is the notion of a sophomore slump, where the second album from a band, you know, comes out rushed or half-baked or whatever, and it doesn't live up to the debut. Not the case for Molly Hatchet. They improved upon their debut. And given that this was released in late 1978, they're at their commercial height and critical height. It really did seem that the prophecy was foretold, and they were truly poised to take over for Leonard Skinner as the premier Southern rock band. But, as we will discuss... Unfortunately, that really did not happen. As the 70s became the 80s, it would become apparent that Molly Hatchet would not be the band to truly carry the flag for Southern Rock into the next decade. I think the flag bearers for Southern Rock in the 80s would be 38 Special and ZZ Top. Those were the two kings of the genre for that stretch, at least when it comes to commercial success and keeping Southern Rock on the radio. Now, a big reason for why this was is because here at the height of their power, the height of their success, Danny Joe Brown leaves the band. Danny Joe Brown leaves the band officially due to health concerns, citing chronic diabetes and pancreatic problems. Now, unfortunately, Danny Joe Brown had health struggles his entire life, and he passed away fairly young. So his story is is quite sad in that regard. But it wasn't just that he had health problems, or at the very least, those health problems were probably exasperated by uh, lifestyle decisions. I mean, this guy had some serious um, drinking and drug habits at this time, and he was a pretty unstable guy. So it's not just that he's facing health issues, it's that he is drinking a ton and doing a lot of drugs, and when you're doing that stuff while under a great deal of pressure to be the flag bearers for an entire genre of music, there's going to be some inner band turmoil. There's going to be some band fights, and that was definitely going on. So in the years since all that, I've read interviews in which Dave Hubeck has said that Danny Joe officially left the band because of health concerns, but... That was more or less a cover story for Danny Joe leaving the band because of um, interband conflicts that were brought on probably more than anything else because of how much Danny Joe was drinking and how much the rest of the guys in the band were drinking and also doing drugs. So Danny Joe would walk away from the band at the end of the 70s, 
and attempt a solo career, the band would continue on without him. And Danny Joe Brown's departure would also mark the first major lineup change that many fans take issue with. There are Molly Hatchet fans that think that the first two records are the only good ones. Now, obviously, I don't agree with that. But this is the first major change in the lineup. And there's a lot of Molly Hatchet fans that don't think it's Molly Hatchet unless Danny Joe is in the lineup. So we will talk about when he uh, comes back into the story after the break. Because right now, we're going to take a short break for a few messages, and when we come back, we're going to pick up our Classic Rock newspaper and go through some recent headlines in the world of Classic Rock, and then we'll get back into the story of Danny Joe's solo career and what the band did without him. So please stay tuned, because we will be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Take a look at my classic rock newspaper. Some stories, not exactly yesterday's news, but recent enough. Our first major story, Kiss Farewell Tour comes to an end and the band announces a new era. 
And this new era is going to be a virtual show with the band now as computer avatars that will play in concert venues on some sort of screen. It's not totally been defined just yet. The interesting thing here is that no one around this is saying the words hologram concert, but from what I'm reading, it sure sounds like it is going to be in the ballpark of that. KISS has teamed up with George Lucas's Industrial Lights and Magic, and also, more importantly, a Swedish company called Pop House Entertainment, which is behind the ABBA Voyage hologram show. So, to me, that's the tell. They don't want to say the words hologram concert because I think the story is out on hologram shows and people aren't impressed with it. It's not an exciting new idea anymore, at least for the public. But I think the industry really wants it to be. So maybe it's not going to be a hologram, but I think it's going to be more or less the same idea. They're just going to call it virtual concerts or something. Here's something interesting. You know who predicted this? Me! <laughs> yes, now I'm not going to play the clip, but if you check out my review on the YouTube channel of the Whitney Houston hologram concert that I went to, I posted that in late 2021, and if you watch it, you'll see that I suggested that KISS is actually one of the very few bands that I could potentially see getting this whole hologram concert idea figured out right. At the time, I was not impressed with the Whitney Houston hologram concert, but I saw potential there. I still think it could potentially be something. My idea was basically that, given that the guys in KISS are all still alive, they could take an active part in designing this hologram show, and it looks like this is exactly what they've done. That gives me some hope that maybe they could figure this out. Maybe they could present a virtual concert with things like live musicians on the stage, maybe the laser and pyro stage effects that they've done in the past. Maybe they could still keep that sort of thing going. And then just the band is, like you say, avatars on the screen. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like. But if it comes to my town and the reviews aren't absolutely god-awful, I would be open to checking it out. Let's move on to our next story. Daryl Hall files lawsuit and restraining order against John Oates. Well, it has finally happened. Hall and Oates is officially no more, at least for right now. But probably for good. This apparently came as a shock to most people, at least judging by social media. Uh, because it seemed that everybody on Twitter and Facebook uh, had to repost the story with the caption, I can't go for that. And then the first comment underneath the post would be someone else saying, no can do. Ooh, real funny. Real funny. Clever. That's <laughs> what social media is for. Beating just the deadest jokes into the ground as much as they can. I think... Hall & Oates' music is just so good and so harmonious that people wrongfully assume that the guys in the band get along with that same level of harmony. But that is not the case. And I learned about this dynamic fairly recently. I did that Halloween episode uh, in 2022 with um, Stephanie Myers and Stephanie Pena from Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes. 
which is a great podcast you should check out, also on Pantheon. Those two came on the show to talk about Halloween songs, but at the start of the podcast, we talked about an appearance that Daryl Hall made on Bill Maher's podcast, Club Random, in which Daryl states very clearly that he does not see John Oates as a musical partner. So I will play a clip of those comments here. I mean, you have a partner, so it's a little different than... I don't have a partner. You think John Oates is my partner? You still tour together, don't you? Yeah, but he's not my partner. Well, your partner. He's my business partner. Uh, he's oh, not geez, my well, look what I've stumbled into here. He's, I, not, I, he's I, not my creative partner. Daryl's response is so bizarre, and you can tell it catches Bill Maher way off guard to the point where he gets a little defensive, and you can tell he's trying to, like, calm Daryl down just a little bit. <laughs> and it's awkward. It's genuinely awkward. And it's so awkward because he seems just so resentful at the idea that they're associated together. Dude, the records were called Hall and Oates. That's how people know you guys. It's just a matter of reality. And trying to undo that all these years later... I think comes across as kind of pathetic and really petty and just it should be beneath him. You know, if, if he did that much more of the work, that should be, I don't know, with the, the amount of success and money they've made enough for him, you know, or if he wants to make some comments and in interviews, that's fine. But when it comes out so bitterly to the point where he's grabbing a bottle of booze to calm himself down, I don't know. That just seems like a little much. Now, this lawsuit and, again, restraining order against John Oates is happening because it looks like John Oates wants to cash out. He's attempting to sell his share of the Hall & Oates catalog to Primary Wave Music, and Daryl Hall does not want that because that would force him into a business partnership with Primary Wave. Also, you can find interviews uh, with Daryl in which he expresses some very strong feelings against the idea of artists selling their catalogs. He thinks that's a mistake. He thinks that artists should never sell their catalogs. And of course, like many artists, he feels he got screwed in his early days. And he wants to hold on to his publishing and his catalog. And that's fine, but John doesn't work for you. <laughs> you know, you're not his boss. So this seems weird. And I guess my question would be, can Daryl just buy John's catalog, if that's the case? Or was something that they were trying to figure out and they couldn't agree on price and that's why John's going to Primary Wave? I don't know. Um, but more importantly, I don't care. I don't give a shit. This is such a boring story at the core of it. It's a eye-catching headline, but it's a fucking boring story. Because you know what it is? It's another example of a band turning into a brand. In that clip, in which Daryl says they're not musical partners, yes, he is absolutely correct. But more to the point, he's correct that they're business partners, and that's the only thing that matters now. Hall & Oates is not a band. It is a brand. So this rather sensational headline, although technically true, is really just clickbait, more or less, for another boring story about backroom corporate bullshit. This is not unlike the stories we saw last year with 
um, that weird hostile takeover deal with Journey. And then uh, Neil, Sean, and Jonathan Kane suing each other over the fucking company credit card. It makes for good headlines, but the story there is not interesting. It's these guys just fighting over money, and who gives a fuck about that? And it's also sad, because this will probably be what marks the end of Hall & Oates as a touring and recording act. Interpersonal drama might break up bands, but only money will break up a brand. Another sad thing, probably not a great loss. I saw Hall & Oates back in 2017, and the energy on stage was not great. It was really bad. It was one of the few shows that I thought the opening act was way better than the headliner. Tears for Fears impressed way more than Hall & Oates did. Some bands can hide the dislike between various members. Hall & Oates uh, were not particularly successful at that. And again, it was a slow, low-energy show. As much as I love Hall & Oates' catalog, and I do, I don't really think it's a great loss that they're not going to be on the road anymore. I saw Daryl Hall without John Oates just last year, and that was pretty good. Despite the fact that he's weird and seemingly kind of a jerk, I would still recommend going to see Daryl Hall uh, if he's playing a theater near you, because he, he does put on a good show, and hey, at the end of the day, maybe, you know, for him to be at his best, he just needs to be away from who at least used to be his musical partner. You're you not, think John Oates is my partner? You still tour together, don't you? Yeah, but he's not my partner. Well, your partner. He's my business partner. Let's get back to the Molly Hatchet story. Molly Hatchet's third album was called Beatin' the Odds, and it was released in September of 1980. And this would feature a new vocalist named Jimmy Farrar. Jimmy is a very strong vocalist, but I would describe him as more of a hard rock vocalist as opposed to a southern rock vocalist. And I think that change kind of holds the album back a little bit. Danny Joe Brown's absence really strips the band of a lot of its personality. And as talented as Jimmy Farrar is, I don't think he quite lived up to the standard that Danny Joe set. Not to say that this is a bad record by any stretch. In fact, I think there's quite a few good songs here. So I will play the title track, Beating the Odds. We were beating the odds, we were beating the odds, we were beating the odds again. We were gambling with the soul, we were playing the win, we were beating the odds again. This album also features a pretty good cover of Creedence Clearwater Revival's Penthouse Pomper. I would say as a whole, it's a pretty good album. Xavier, when he was on, agreed that this was one of the better albums, and he likes Jimmy Farrar more than me, but I think we both agree that he's just not as unique as Danny Joe Brown. Doesn't have that secret sauce. Another thing he doesn't have is, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, Danny Joe Brown's good looks. <laughs> now look, Danny Joe Brown is not exactly some male model Duran Duran looking guy, but he did look like a lead singer. And the real major knock against Jimmy Farrar is not his vocals or his vocal differences from Danny Joe. The real knock against Jimmy Farrar is his look. Jimmy Farrar is overweight, he's a pretty big dude, and he is not particularly good looking. So the major criticism at Jimmy Farrar were really mostly about his appearance and physique, not his actual talent. 
that is a rather unfortunate reality. So here is a clip from my conversation with Xavier Russell, which Xavier talks a little bit about uh, Jimmy Farrar's look and also his vocals. And a lot of people didn't like Jimmy Farrar, mainly because of his looks. And, yeah. I, and I, remember, I remember Pat Armstrong saying, oh, we found this great vocalist. He's, you know, he looks like the back end of a bus, but boy, can he sing. <laughs> And he did, and he, he'd obviously learned the words because when he went for the rehearsal, he, he'd sung all the songs. And then he was on quite a few good albums, and I loved Beating the Odds. I thought it was a great album. Yeah, I've read some things about Jimmy Farrar that have made me laugh, but I felt guilty about laughing because <laughs> it's all quite mean. You can find articles in which they rag on him for how overweight he is, but also just how <laughs> ugly <laughs> the guy was. And that sucks, man. Because <laughs> he is a good singer. But in showbiz, looks matter. There's no getting around that. And he didn't have the look. He did not have the frontman lead vocalist look. If he was playing drums, if he was on keyboards, maybe. But not out front. Out front, you got to have the look. And it just wasn't there. At the end of the day, I don't think the band saw him as a permanent replacement. I think this was the band getting someone that could hold them over while they waited for Danny Joe to come back. This album was also the last one to feature a cover with an epic Frank Frazetta painting. This time it would be the one called Conan the Conqueror, which obviously is a piece that he made for the Conan the Barbarian paperback novels. This is one of the most famous Frazetta paintings as well, and I love it. It is so chaotic. These first three covers man, are some of Frazetta's best work. So this band knew what was up. Molly Hatchet knew which ones to grab, and it is so unfortunate that this would be the last time that an original Frazetta painting would be used. They would find artwork definitely inspired by Frazetta as their discography would go on, but this would be the last original one. The next year, Danny Joe Brown would form the Danny Joe Brown Band and release his debut and only solo album in the summer of 1981, which was called, and I'm not joking, Danny Joe Brown and the Danny Joe Brown Band. That's the name of the album, Danny Joe Brown and the Danny Joe Brown Band. <laughs> Xavier and I really laughed about this when uh, we were talking about Molly Hatchet. He correctly called it the most crass name for an album ever. And yes, that is right on the money. You could have named the album Danny Joe Brown or the Danny Joe Brown Band. But no, he did both. And it is so stupid that it hangs over the music of the album. Because if you look at it, you look at that stupid fucking title and it distracts you from the music on it. Not really, but... You know what I mean. It's just one of the worst album names I have ever seen. One of the most interesting things about this album is that it included future Molly Hatchet guitarist Bobby Ingram. And I can hear some of you old school Molly Hatchet fans booing already. And you can knock it off. We're not going to talk about Bobby too much today. He'll be in the next episode. 
Bobby would eventually join Molly Hatch at the end of the 80s, and he is the one who leads the band today. So we will talk about him more in the next episode. Now, the single from this album was called Edge of Sundown, and it was a minor hit on the mainstream rock chart, so that's respectable for a solo debut, but it was a far cry from the commercial success of Flirting with Disaster that Danny Joe had enjoyed just a few years earlier. It's a pretty good song. I think it was his attempt at a Freebird type of track. Uh, it has a slow tempo intro with a lot of long, frantic guitar solos at the end. And that's really a good introduction to Bobby Ingram because for all that's been said about him, that guy can play. That dude can absolutely shred. One of the earliest examples of that here. Joe's solo career stalled out after this, mostly because of his drug addictions and alcohol abuse. I wasn't able to verify this, but I did find one website that stated that the entire Danny Joe Brown band quit on him mid-tour due to his behavior and drunken antics. Now, I don't know if that's 100% totally true, but I would bet a great deal that there is truth to that. Ultimately, I... I think this whole album was a mistake. I, I think it was a huge mistake for Danny Joe to leave the band at their height of their power. I think any of these songs would have fit nicely in an Amali Hatchet album. And I mean, no disrespect to Danny Joe when I say this, but for all his talents, I don't think he was too big for Molly Hatchet. I think he fit perfectly in the formula that that band designed on those first two albums. And I think had he stuck around for beating the odds and the albums that followed the band would have had a chance at being that Leonard Skinner type of a successful Southern rock band into the 80s. But I think when he walked away from him, that pretty much ended any chances of that happening. And again, the solo album is fine, but it's ultimately not special. And it's not better than anything that he did with Molly Hatchet. Now, shortly after he released that debut album... Molly Hatchett returned with another album with Jimmy Farrar out front. Take No Prisoners was released in November 1981. And the album cover for this one featured the band posed in a Frazetta-style painting. It's the members of the band painted wearing all of these Viking-style outfits and holding spears and axes and stuff like that. And maybe a cool idea in concept, quite lame in execution, and not doing Jimmy Farrar any favors because it makes him look like some buff, built Viking warrior. And all that does is call attention to the fact that he was absolutely not in that sort of shape in real life, which provides a lot of opportunities for people to kind of snicker at, myself included on that. So <laughs> I am not throwing stones here. I don't know. The album cover just doesn't work for me. This album includes a track called Respect Me in the Morning, which is a duet with Joyce Kennedy. Take a listen to this. So Joyce Kennedy had previously fronted a band called Mother's Finest with her husband, Glenn Murdoch. 
Mother's Finest is a very interesting band from this period of time. They build themselves as, quote, the first black rock band. They're a very underrated group, and they played on a lot of big-name rock tours in the 70s, but they really couldn't get on the radio because the music they made didn't exactly fit into a genre. And I know this is not a fun thing to bring up. People don't like hearing about this, but it's reality. If you're talking about a black act from the classic rock era, 60s, 70s, and 80s, racism is going to be part of the story. And you can bet your ass that Mother's Finest was held back because of racism. They did not get opportunities that white acts got because of just old-fashioned fucking racism. That sucks, but their legacy of being a very talented act, at least, is secure. They are definitely a band that, um, if you know, you know. I mean, real music nerds know this group. This is a very credible and artistically interesting band. I listened to a little bit of them just because I wasn't familiar with them. It blows my mind that that group and Molly Hatchet teamed up for a song because... And we will talk about this a lot later, too, but Molly Hatchet, being a Southern rock band, has not just conservative members in the group, but they have a reputation for being the, you know, Confederate flag-waving band. (laughs) So they're kind of the last group that you would think that would do a duet with a black female vocalist, but they did, to their credit... Now, I can't believe this, but I actually found a comment from Joyce about this song. This was posted on a website called jungleroom.com, and she said about the song, quote, It's not a serious story. It's just that we all traveled around in the same circles, and Mother's Finest was one of those bands that could just play any marquee. It's a little underwhelming, but not surprising. This song, although interesting, is seemingly not a significant moment of her career or really Molly Hatchett's career either. It's more just sort of a, oh, hey, look at this odd thing. And that's about it. It's a pretty good song, though. This album also features a cover of Little Richard's Long Tall Sally. It's a slower version of that song, but still pretty good. And again, talking about rock and roll influences, they're not going with Southern rock staples at this point. They're playing their true rock and roll influences, and Little Richard is absolutely the genesis of rock and roll. There's an absolutely fantastic documentary that was released, I think, earlier this year called Little Richard, I Am Everything. I would absolutely encourage you to go see it or catch it on streaming if you can. It's directed by a woman named Lisa Cortez. Absolutely stellar doc. And again, tip of the hat to Molly Hatchett here playing a cover of a song written by a black queer artist from the 50s. The last little bit of trivia I have about this album here is that, if you remember, I did an episode about uh, Katie Seagal's music career. The actor Katie Seagal had a music career, uh, and back in the 70s, a lot of it was her singing background on albums. She was a background singer, and yes, she shows up on this Molly Hatchet album. Katie Seagal did backing vocals, I believe, on a track called Lady Luck. But I really couldn't make out her voice in the mix. So, unfortunately, she is supposedly on this album, but you really can't hear her. Which is too bad, because she does have a unique voice, and it would have been cool to point to it. But unfortunately, you know, my ears are just not that sharp. In 2001, Dave Hubick told Swampland.com that this was his least favorite Molly Hatchet album, saying, quote, 
Take No Prisoners was my least favorite. I got real lazy in my songwriting. The band was lazy overall, and I think the album reflects that. We were not focused. Well, I don't think it's their worst, but it definitely does seem like a departure from the genre Southern Rock. So maybe I would agree that it's the weakest when it comes to their early days. And I think the band knew it at the time. The Jimmy Farrar experiment would end in May 1982 as he would leave the band. In 2011, he told that same website, Swampland.com, quote, We had a lot of internal problems in the band, drinking and drugs and just stress on the road. And living away from my family was like a living hell for me. And I knew that I could not raise my family 5,000 miles away. And I made the choice to go home and raise my family. Yeah, that's fair enough. And that... May have been the truth, or maybe the band saw that he was not their long-term answer. So I don't know if he quit or if he was fired, but it sounds at least like it was mutual. So for those Jimmy Farrar fans, he got two records out of him with Molly Hatchet, Beating the Odds, and Take No Prisoners. Danny Joe Brown would return to vocal duties following this. In 1999, he told, again, Swampland.com how it happened. Quote, the company didn't push my record, and they didn't backhatch it. And I remember going to the bathroom with the president of the record label. He said, Danny, you guys have to get back together. I remember looking over at him, and he was in one urinal, and I was in the other. <laughs> anyway, we decided right there in the bathroom that we would get back together. And that's the truth. <laughs> Sorry for my lame-ass uh, impression there, but uh, what a funny story. <laughs> Uh, Danny Joe agreed to get back in the band while taking a leak because the president of the fucking record company was a goddamn bathroom talker. Couldn't help himself selling the band to Danny as they're taking a leak. So that's how it happened. I believe him. And it's the right move. If the band stood any chance of success in the 80s, they were going to need Danny's voice. And it's because he has a really unique voice. What makes Molly Hatch a truly a special band at least in part, was Danny Joe Brown's vocals. And I don't think anyone would disagree with me on that. So here is a quick clip of Xavier talking about the appeal of Danny's vocals. He had such a growly voice. It yeah. sounded like he was, um, he was drinking Listerine or something. <laughs> but I, I loved his vocals, and I love the gravelness of his vocals. Molly Hatchett's fifth album, titled No Guts, No Glory, was released in March 1983. This album cover features the band in Old West cowboy gear. So no Frazetta artwork, no Frazetta-inspired artwork. If anything, it reminds me of the Eagles' Desperado cover. And there is a music video for the song What's It Gonna Take that features them all in their cowboy outfits. I don't like this album cover. I like the common thread of the at least Frazetta-inspired Viking warrior look. But in any case, there is a song on here called Sweet Dixie, which in the lyrics absolutely reaffirms that they are a all-caps southern rock band. So they are making a real point to get back to their roots here. They are trying to reset as the lineup that had enjoyed success in the late 70s. Now, to their credit, this album also features one of their absolute best songs, Fall of the Peacemakers. Take a listen to this. A horse from the past brought me a piece of chance. He paid our price, now he's free last. And imagine, we call him a dreamer. How many times must good men die? 
So these lyrics are a reference to John Lennon and his anti-war campaign. If you listen to the lyrics, yes, this is a southern rock band, but the text of the lyrics here is not necessarily as conservative as one might think. There's some nuance to this band. You know, the conservative take on John Lennon is that he was a dirty hippie who was anti-war and hated the troops and, you know, all that crap. So here's a band that people might assume, because of their reputation, would have that opinion as well, but they don't. They celebrate John Lennon. They celebrate the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Little Richard. They know their rock and roll history, and they're inspired by it. And in this case, they're not just covering a John Lennon song either. They're writing one of the best songs they ever produced in tribute to him. It's a solid album, but uh, at this point, commercial success is definitely on the decline. There was a single here called Kinda Like Love, and it did not chart. So they are really starting to struggle, especially as now we're in the 80s and MTV is here. And the popular new genres are like new wave. Uh, (laughs) Not necessarily very friendly to Southern rock. So there were real questions about how viable this band could be in the 80s. They would release this album, The Deed Is Done, in November 1984. And this is one of my absolute favorite Molly Hatchet albums. Although it's not Frazetta, this cover is absolutely badass. One of my favorites of theirs. And there was a lot of pressure from their label to go in a more commercial direction. I think Epic was looking at the success that ZZ Top was enjoying with their Eliminator album and saw that as a potential formula for Molly Hatchet to follow. I like the idea of using, you know, contemporary 80s production with their southern rock bass. I think there was potential to make great music, and I think the end result is that. A song called Satisfied Man is the lead-off single. This was the last song of theirs to ever land on the Billboard Hot 100. It topped out at number 81, and I will play a clip of that. So this song cracks me up. The lyrics are all about how he doesn't do drugs or womanize because he has such a great girlfriend or wife back at home. That's all he needs is this one girl. Uh, He's a satisfied man, so he doesn't need to go out and party because he's got her at home. (laughs) Which, um, just knowing the drug and alcohol habits of all of the guys in this band uh, make the lyrics all that more funny. And this music video is amazing. It is one of the greatest lost music videos of the 80s. It features the band playing in some, you know, dirty bar room, and they see some biker dude creeping on the women who are in the audience, and Danny Joe, in defense of these women, jumps off the stage to fight this creepy biker dude, and they're like squaring off around the table. And suddenly, the doors for the place blow off, and a armored knight, like this very knight from the cover, bursts in 
And then it turns out that this knight is also a biker, so Danny Joe escapes by jumping on the motorcycle with the knight. Riding bitch, by the way. And they escape into the night. And then it's revealed at the very end of the video, the last shots of the video, is the knight taking off its helmet, and it's revealed that the knight is actually a hot chick. <laughs> and her and Danny are riding off on the motorcycle into the night. Absolutely hysterical. <laughs> I love this video. This is why I love early MTV, because these just funny concepts. So, yeah, if you haven't seen that, definitely go check it out. And yes, the lyrics of the song are very silly, but I don't know, the music here is really good. Like, I, I think they implemented the synthesizers and 80s production techniques very well, you know? And I think they did that throughout the rest of the album. There's another track on here called She Does, She Does that has a saxophone. And, yeah, you know, old school Molly Hatchet fans might be suspicious of that. I think it works really well. Another track here called Stone in Your Heart is one that I liked. So, to ramp this up, here is a clip of Xavier talking about um, his interview with Dave Hubeck for Kerrang! Magazine. Because it was during the promotional cycle for this album that Xavier met the band. And got to interview them for what would become the cover story of his article in Kerrang! Once he saw that I was an actual fan, and I think he must have read some of my stuff. I mean, maybe he hadn't, but it looked like he had. And I started questioning. He said, oh, well, here's someone who knows what they're talking about. And then when I asked him if he had any whiskey, that's when he passed me the, that's when he passed me the Crown Royal, which I just held on to. And in fact, I got another picture of me and Doc Holliday. Actually, I am holding Jack Daniels in that one. <laughs> and um, he was a bit cagey at first, but then once I started asking more, he, it seemed like he was quite happy to talk about it. And then the fact I, we started talking about songs and how, how the record company were trying to change them and, and bringing Danny Joe Brown back was, you know, he was obviously ready to come back. Maybe he got over what he was going through. I thought, well, let's give it another shot with our original singer. I'd say Hubeck was very easygoing when I was there. He seemed quite relaxed because I think he, I think the band were in quite a good place. You know, they'd got this new record out, got on a Billy Squire tour, and they, I actually think they went down better than Billy Squire, personally. Yeah, I believe that. Real quick, here is the Kerrang! Uh, magazine that Xavier's article is printed in. Molly Hatchet gets the front cover, and you can, you know, kind of see these Viking warriors, this original piece of art here, and... Uh, yeah, that sure is a Confederate flag up top, so it's definitely part of their imagery and brand, and yeah, that, you know, of course hasn't aged well, but if you take it in the context of the times, I, I do like the magazine cover, and if you like Molly Hatchet, you should track down um, this interview, because it's really interesting. It comes at an interesting point in the band's history, sort of their last gasp at, like, real chart success, so yeah, once again, really glad that Xavier was able to come on and tell me about it. All right. We've been going pretty hard on this story, so let's take a break here. Let's go to a segment that takes a look back on the biggest classic rock events in the past, oh, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, even 60 years ago. This is a segment that I call Back in Time. So Huey Lewis, take us back in time. Is this the 50s? Space Cowboy Yeah 
me the gangster of love. January 12th, 1974, The Joker by the Steve Miller Band hits number one on Billboard. Obviously, this is a hugely important song for Steve's career, but I think it's even more important than most people realize. The Joker took Steve from being a mid-level theater act in the mid-70s and put him on the trajectory to be one of the biggest artists of the 70s. All right, moving forward 10 years. January 11th, 1984, BBC Radio 1 DJ Mike Reed refuses to play Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. BBC would eventually place a total ban on the song as well, due to objections about the suggestive lyrics. But despite that, the song would hit number one on the UK singles charts on January 21st. And that was just the start. This was a massively successful song and it is still a beloved classic today. And I bring this up as it's another reminder that censorship like this never fucking works. But they still try it today. Just a couple years ago, that uh, WAP song by Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion in 2020. People were up in arms with that and trying to get it banned and complaining about it, all because it's so explicit. Talk about an old story. Going back even further than this, I guess it'll always be present when it comes to pop music. But yeah, just another example that Frankie Goes to Hollywood in 1984. All right. Ten years ago, January 27th, Pete Seeger dies at age 94. Pete is not Bob Seeger's dad, ha ha ha, but he is one of the most important and influential artists in American history. If you're not familiar, I would point you to Bruce Springsteen's 2006 We Shall Overcome, the Seeger Sessions album, as an entry point. But before that, I would recommend you just look up the album cover for his 1966 album, Dangerous Songs. It's pretty cool. It's pretty striking. So, you know, we're talking a lot about album artwork today. This is a fun way to present a record just with the words, just with the words Dangerous Songs and the punctuation. I get a kick out of that album cover. But that's all I got on Pete for right now. So I'll play us out with a musical connection that I bet you were not aware of. Now you recognize this song, right? In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. Great song, right? Everybody loves this. Or at least everybody should love this. Well, here's the version you didn't know. Here is Pete Seeger and his band, The Weavers, playing an earlier version of this song back in 1951. All right, last segment. Let's finish this up here. Molly Hatchet released their first live album, which was called Double Trouble Live, in November 1985. This album features a cover of Freebird. So you can see they are still trying to carry the Southern Rock torch from Leonard Skinner, or at least really double down on that Leonard Skinner-Jacksonville connection they have. But I don't know how much good it did them. They would be dropped by Epic Records after this. And founder Dave Hubeck would leave the band as well, mostly due to his, at this point, out-of-control cocaine addiction. What were the lyrics in Satisfied Man? <laughs> Don't do the drugs, ain't got the time, something like that. <laughs> 
But anyway, he had to step aside because his drug problems were out of hand and he could not handle it anymore. But he wouldn't be the only one. Guitarist Steve Holland would also depart. Now, in that 1999 interview with Swampland.com, Danny Joe Brown explained why Steve left. He said, quote, Steve was absolutely insane. That's why he left. I've seen Steve Holland eat cornflakes pouring beer on them. End quote. Oh, jeez. So, yeah. Alcohol, obviously a problem. Uh, this band is tearing themselves apart at this point. Not unlike what was going on in the late 70s, but now, instead of the pressure of being poised to be the biggest southern rock band in the world, which was the deal in 1978, now they're facing the pressures of, hey, is this band's future viable at all? And that pressure forced a couple of the guys out of the lineup. The person who would replace Dave and Steve was someone I mentioned earlier, Bobby Ingram. At the time, I think Bobby made absolutely perfect sense. Danny Joe Brown was still in the band, and Danny Joe knew Bobby from his solo album. What was that title? Danny Joe Brown and the Danny Joe Brown Band? <laughs> yes. So... Bobby was in the Danny Joe Brown band, so it would make sense that he would step in with Molly Hatchett. He knows the songs. He knows how to work with Danny. Makes sense to me. The result of this would be Molly Hatchett's seventh album, Lightning Strikes Twice, on August 30th, 1989. Very cool album cover for that one. And according to an old Kerrang! article that I found, the original title for this album was supposed to be Heads Are Gonna Roll. <laughs> And, man, they should have went with that because, one, that connects them to their whole fucking band name, you know, Hatchet Molly. But it's definitely better than Lightning Strikes Twice because Lightning Strikes Twice, all I hear with that title is wishful thinking. They were hoping that this was going to be another flirting with disaster, but that absolutely did not happen. One of the singles here, There Goes the Neighborhood, was their final charting single and the album itself did not chart so lightning did not strike twice for them the guitar work is excellent we can credit that to bobby ingram but this is ultimately not one of their better songs songs on this album that i like are called find somebody new and a cover of a bonnie tyler song called hide your heart Another track here called What's the Story, Old Glory has some very interesting lyrics. It's about how greed is ruining America. And that is a very interesting theme given the conservative reputation that this band has. So I'm going to play a clip of that. Here is some of the lyrics from the song What's the Story, Old Glory. in the lyrics you can find some anti-Japanese sentiment as well but I would just say that's fairly typical for the 80s. Ultimately the album is one of their weakest efforts probably one of the worst of everything we talked about today and the sad fact of the matter was that the band was just out of steam. I mentioned that the two guitar players Steve and Dave left before this album but this album would also mark the final appearances of Danny Joe Brown, guitarist Dwayne Rowland, bassist Riff West, and drummer Bruce Crump. A song called Heart of My Soul is the last track on the album, and it serves as an unintentionally bittersweet farewell 
from these departing members. Their new label, Capital, would drop them in July 1990, and during a show that year in Toledo, Ohio, the band would announce on stage that they were breaking up. Epic would eventually release a Greatest Hits CD, which featured two new tracks in late 1990. Those tracks are called Shake the House Down and Ragtop Deluxe, and those are both two really good songs. So, real quick, I'll play a clip of Shake the House Down. Shake the house down. That's a good fucking song. I can't believe that didn't show up in one of their earlier albums. But in any case, this is pretty much the definitive end of the original lineup of Molly Hatchet. The band would take some time off and then eventually reform in the mid-90s and continue on with Bobby Ingram in a leadership role to the point that he is now the band leader and, I guess, brand owner for Molly Hatchet still today, they released a number of albums through the 2000s and have a new record coming out just this year in 2024. And we are going to talk about all of that in part two. But as far as today goes, here's what I'll close with. Molly Hatchet, I hope I've convinced you at this point, is one of the all-time great southern rock bands of the classic rock era. They were definitely their own worst enemies as far as chart success goes. Danny Joe Brown leaving the band right at their commercial height really handicapped them for the 1980s, and unfortunately nothing ever punched through success-wise as much as flirting with disaster. But that's not to say that the music isn't very good. There's lots of great music through their 80s albums, and I would recommend pretty much every record I talked about today, except maybe Take No Prisoners and Lightning Strikes Twice... I would not recommend those as entry points. All of the other albums I've discussed, I think are worth a listen. And even if you're not familiar with the band at all, if you like Southern Rock at all, I think you will find songs you like on really any of the first three records or The Deed Is Done or even No Guts, No Glory. There's some good stuff on all of those records. Speaking of those records, the incredible album art is an underrated and really under-discussed part of their legacy. And I think it's cool when a band has something about their legacy beyond the music. And I think for this story, the album covers are really the special sauce of the band. It's that little extra that gives more to the Molly Hatchet story. And if you see these records in record shops and they're priced reasonable, you should absolutely get a copy because even if you're not crazy about the music on them, these are fun records to look at. So definitely recommended for your vinyl collection. And again, they're definitely a very southern, southern rock band, but they're not as, I don't know, redneck as you might think. Again, this early work, this original era, was very clearly inspired by Little Richard, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles. We got that song that was a duet with Joyce Kennedy. And also, lyric-wise, very few songs from this era is the band expressing any sort of political opinions. Here's what's coming up in part two. We're going to talk about Bobby Ingram's era as the band leader. We're going to talk about what his vision for the band meant. Unfortunately, that is divisive. There's a lot of old school fans who never got on board with that. But I am not in that group. I think there is definitely some interesting music 
in the Bobby Ingram era of the band. I'm not going to say it's better than this original run, but I think there's some fun stuff worth checking out. And again, the band has not retired. They are not done. They have a new lead singer, just joined last year in 2023, and they have a new album coming out this year in 2024. So I will talk about my thoughts on that in part two as well. So just to wrap up, I hope I've convinced you that there is much more to this band than Flirting with Disaster, and I really hope you will join me for Molly Hatchet Part 2 that takes a look at them from the 90s up until current day. With that, I have to recommend and cite a few sources here. The website I mentioned earlier, Swampland.com, did some great interviews with past members, and thankfully that stuff is still all online now, so definitely check those out. Otherwise, I have to give credit to OldKarang81 on Twitter, is that is the account that posted scans of Old Kerrang magazine articles, reviews, and interviews about the band. That stuff is excellent, and that is not just how I got a great deal of information about this band, but how I found out about Xavier Russell. And getting him to join me, not just to talk about Molly Hatchet, but to be a guest on the show and talk about Kerrang as a whole as well. That was a real treat. That's one of my favorite things I've done recently. So please check out my interview with Xavier. I have to, again, say thank you to him for his time. It was so cool hearing those Kerrang! stories. And it was so much fun talking to a guy who did a lot of work advocating for Molly Hatchet back in the 80s while I'm doing a podcast now trying to do the same thing today. So yeah, real fun conversation. Thank you to Xavier for coming by the show. As far as what's coming up for this show... Obviously, part two about Molly Hatchet. I've announced earlier that me and Chris are going to start up our next songwriter series, which will be about Jimmy Buffett, who passed away last year. But that does not mean we're done with Warren Zevon content. So we'll have more Warren Zevon content in 2024 as well. And I can also tease that we're going to have an Eddie Van Halen-centric episode out in time for his birthday. So if you're an Eddie Van Halen fan, we'll have that to look forward to. Otherwise, the intro song played at the start of this episode was written and recorded by Michael Skitch. Skitchiano. You can find him at Skitch Music on Twitter. And with that, I'm going to play us out the song from Molly Hatchet's debut album. It's their cover of the Allman Brothers song. This is Dreams I'll Never See. Thanks for listening. You know, there's no shortage of great content out there, so you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means quite a lot. If you're so inclined, please give this podcast a five-star rating and a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. And share our links wherever you can. Or mention this show to anyone you know looking for a podcast recommendation. All of this helps us out a great deal, and I appreciate it. You can connect with us on social media, too. We are at... Play That Podcast on Facebook, Threads, Blue Sky, and even TikTok. Or we are at Play That Rock and Roll on YouTube and Instagram. Please post a comment and say hello. Finally, Play That Rock and Roll is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast community. So if you're looking for more music podcasts beyond this one, trust me, start with Pantheon. You won't be disappointed. Otherwise, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time 
for more great music and stories from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.